The Texas Attorney General is now getting involved in a court fight over whether Texas school children should be required to say the Pledge of Allegiance on today's Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. Should toothless inmates in Texas be provided dentures? Right now, many are not. We'll take a look at the policy some say needs to change. Something that may be in your garage right now could be contributing to the decline in the bee population. We'll take a look. And speaking of bees, we'll get the goods on honey. What is it exactly? We'll hear from our insect expert. Plus, tracking especially high rates of asthma in Dallas on today's Texas Standard. From Honey Springs to Beeville and all places across Texas, we've got a little bit of a bee theme going on for today's Texas Standard. It's Wednesday, September 26th. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. We'll get to those bee stories a little later in the show. But first, for many of us who grew up here in the U.S., it's the way we started our morning for more than a dozen years. For those who grew up here in Texas, they know just after reciting the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, you'd shift your attention and pledge to the Texas flag. But many Texas parents may not realize that if their kids abstain from reciting the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance at school, their children may be breaking the law. At least that's the contention of the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He is formally intervening in a lawsuit against the Cypress Fairbanks School District, a case filed almost a year ago. The outcome of the lawsuit could have ripple effects nationwide. Lauren McGahee's reporting this story for the Dallas Morning News. Lauren, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about Mr. Paxton's involvement in this case, what can you tell us about the underlying lawsuit here? This is a really interesting case, actually. Texas has a law that requires students to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning at school. There is a provision in that law, though, that lets parents opt their kids out of the pledge. And last year, there was a student in the Houston area who uh, was sitting for the pledge and her teacher and principal kicked her out of school for doing so. And she sued the state, um, saying that her First Amendment rights had been violated. And that's kind of what the crux of the issue is in the, the continuing lawsuit now. What's the rationale that you're hearing for the state mandating kids to say the Pledge of Allegiance in the first place? Attorney General Paxton says that it's a moral good. He said in a statement that kids learn about citizenship and patriotism from saying the pledge every morning. Uh, we talked to a constitutional First Amendment uh, rights expert who said that this law, uh, he believes, is unconstitutional. And he cited a couple of Supreme Court cases um, from the past century that actually found that students can't be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance against their will. So he believes that this case could be a, a precedent setter. And if it actually ends up in the Supreme Court, it will determine the legality both of the Texas compulsory pledge law and any other state that has instituted a law like it. It seems like, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance has been going on in schools for, you know, years and years and years. Like, how has this not come up before? Is there not a case that that kind of sets this in stone as, as to what's legal and what's not? There are actually two Supreme Court cases. Uh, there was one from many years ago uh, in which the justices actually ruled that students cannot be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance, that that would violate 
their First Amendment rights of free speech. And then there was another case um, a couple decades after that that said that children in schools cannot be punished for advocating for something or for some kind of act of civil disobedience if it didn't otherwise disrupt the educational setting. So the uh, expert that we talked to said both of these rulings together, he believes would would show that a student who sits quietly during the Pledge of Allegiance uh, cannot be penalized for that action. But he did admit that um, states have been trying to kind of skirt or get around these past Supreme Court rulings by putting a provision in the law that says, well, parents can opt their kids out if they want to by signing a waiver or something of the sort. He says, while he still thinks kids cannot be forced to stand for the pledge, that that waiver provision that's been uh, becoming more popular in the last five or 10 years is kind of made things a little murky Mm -hmm. and that he thinks that while students, he believes, still have the right to sit even without such a waiver, that eventually uh, this question will probably make its way to the Supreme Court and they'll probably have to, you know, weigh in yet again on, you know, what kind of control the parent actually has over that child's uh, First Amendment rights in the classroom. Interesting. It may be worth noting here that uh, Ken Paxton is running for re-election, and this case was filed last October. Any idea why the attorney general is just getting involved now? The case is still ongoing, and the most recent um, development was back in July when the uh, U.S. District Court judge actually said that the student and her mother, who supports her uh, sitting during the pledge, had uh, the right to sue the school district for violating her First Amendment rights. Um, the Attorney General of the state of Texas, any time a uh, state law is being questioned for its legality, has the right to weigh in. Now, I don't know why uh, he's weighing in now instead of last month or the mm-hmm. month before that. But the the AG does have the right as the state's lawyer to say, look, someone is questioning whether one of our laws is, is unconstitutional, and I'm going to weigh in on that. Any idea what, what the timeline is or, or, or when and where this might go next? Yes, the case is, is set to head to trial in April of 2019. So whoever's the, the loser in that case could then appeal that uh, to the Fifth uh, Court of Appeals in New Orleans if they wanted to. And if the outcome still isn't satisfactory to um, to the parties, then they can appeal it to the Supreme Court. But this is this will probably this case will probably be around for for many more years, depending on the outcome. Lauren McGahey is covering this story for the Dallas Morning News. Lauren, thank you again. Thanks. In the Texas prison system, many toothless inmates are denied dentures. If dentures are not deemed a, quote, medical necessity, the inmates are left to opt for pureed cafeteria food to eat and may not be able to communicate effectively. Carrie Blakinger has been writing about this for the Houston Chronicle. She covers Texas prisons. Carrie, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So what is the state policy for Texas inmates who need dentures? Currently, it's based on medical necessity. That does not include chewing. Chewing in and of itself is not considered a medical necessity under current policy. So there are lots of inmates who don't have teeth at all or just have very few teeth? Um, Yeah, it certainly appears that way. I don't have, I, I wasn't able to get a hard count on how many inmates say they need dentures, but 
I got a flood of mail about it once I started making it known that this is something I was writing about. You know, and I've, I've, I've visited guys, I've gotten them sending me their medical records. I mean, these are men that in some cases have, and you know, and women that have no teeth or have had no teeth for years. Um, in some cases, they have two or three teeth. They're only recommended for dentures if they have seven or fewer teeth and a blended diet is not sufficient to maintain a healthy nutritional status. Now, this hasn't always been how Texas handled dentures. I understand there used to be a program in prisons that uh, inmates actually made dentures themselves. Yeah, there was a uh, there was a vocational program. I, I think it was at Ellis or Estelle, and that ended around two thousand three, two thousand four. Uh, I haven't been able to get a clear explanation as to why that ended. And after that, the number of dentures that the prison system gave out per year dropped dramatically. So how does how Texas deals with dentures uh, compare with other states? I don't have a sense of nationally, like every state, but the two states that I I do know what happens for sure. Well, I guess three states. Um, Ohio has a vocational denture making program, Mm -hmm. and that's how they, you know, fund their inmate dentures. And California gives out a lot of dentures. They gave out something like close to 5,000 last year, whereas Texas gave out like 60 or 70, which is been about what it's given out every year. And obviously, Texas has more inmates. Um, And then in New York, which um, before I was a reporter, I did time in the New York prison system. So I know firsthand that they definitely give out dentures because I've seen, I've I've never, I never saw this issue with toothless Mm -hmm. inmates when I was there. I mean, it's, it's interesting. and, And some people listening might be thinking, well, you know, why should we be spending, you know, money on on this? They might agree with the idea that, you know, dentures aren't medically necessary. But besides chewing, um, what are some of the issues that folks are having when they don't have any teeth? Well, I mean, it also can impact, you know, your ability to talk. Mm -hmm. And there's some concerns about how that impacts mental health in terms of your ability to communicate with people and in terms of your self-image. But I think the most obvious thing is, is is when you get out, that makes it really hard to get a job if you're a toothless felon. Now, one inmate that you wrote about in particular, David Ford, can you tell me a little bit about his situation and how it, it may be changing? Yeah, so uh, he's been trying to get dentures for about four years. And when I put in a request to interview him, the warden called him down to his office and was like, why is this woman trying to interview you? And he said, oh, it's, you know, because it can't get teeth. A few days later, he was called to medical and, you know, told that he was going to be approved for dentures. And um, as of Friday, apparently, he's had uh, an appointment scheduled for surgery so that he can, he required some oral surgery before he could get the dentures. So um, if that all goes through, it seems like at least that might be a happy ending for one guy. For one guy, but uh, at this point, does the state seem inclined to change their policy? Are there any lawsuits or other complaints kind of coming out about it? I mean, that remains to be seen. I, I think it's definitely a possibility that that there could be change as a result of all this, but it's probably too early to tell. Carrie Blakinger covers Texas prisons for the Houston Chronicle. Carrie, thank you again. Thanks for having me. That sound, of course, means it's time to check in on the Talk of Texas. Social media editor Wells Dunbar monitoring the Twitters and the Facebooks. Hi, Laura, yes. And one story that has folks talking. New polling in the U.S. House race in Central Texas has politics watchers sounding off on Twitter. The term TX31 
As in Texas 31st Congressional District, trending huh? as the Cook Political Report moves the solidly Republican district from likely R to lean R. As Evan Smith opined on Twitter, the district was so red until this year a Democratic candidate could not get arrested there. <laughs> the Democratic candidate this midterm is MJ Hagar, whose viral campaign commercial has helped her rake in small uh, small contributions and is now airing a 30-second version of that clip in the district. She's running against longtime Republican incumbent John Carter, who was elected to the seat 16 years ago. Here's some of the stuff they're saying on Twitter. Jordan Tesler says, Texas 31, should MJ Hagar flip it, would be a really deep strike into red territory. There's three districts more GOP than it at lean GOP currently, and two of them have scandal-tarred incumbents. Meanwhile, J.P. Barada says the call to uh, uh, improve the Democratic chances there seems a little hasty. Hmm. So not the final word there. Right. You know, Laura, we're also hearing from folks about that story at the top of the show about... Uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. yeah, lots of interesting perspectives there. I'll be back with that later in the show. All right. We will look forward to it, and we'll see you back here then. And uh, we'll be back just around the corner. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice. Flooding, of course, has been a big issue across Texas, and that's certainly been high profile in recent years. Now, a massive update to Austin's floodplain maps shows about 3,000 properties all around the city are at a higher risk of flooding than previously thought. As KUT Austin's Mose Bouchelle reports, some parts of town where that new risk is most concentrated are the same places where the city of Austin's already spent millions building flood walls and drainage to try to hold back the water. The day I met Noemi Everett and her neighbor Franklin Andrew in East Austin's Las Simas neighborhood, they were trying to finish mowing before the rain clouds moved in. But they were happy to take a break and share memories of a time when unruly grass was the least of this neighborhood's concerns. As soon as it used to rain in this area, no traffic could come down this area. And every all the residents would, had to stay in until the water drained down. Me and my kids, we used to push people out of the water. My kids were teenagers and we would just go and push all the cars back off of the water parts so where they can get on the street and get going again. So to protect life and property, the city improved drainage here, and in 2004, it built the Crystal Brook flood wall on Walnut Creek running along the neighborhood. The final price tag was around $15 million, and it worked. They did a great improvement. It's become a very boring, dry neighborhood. <laughs> that project took around 175 houses here out of the 100-year floodplain. That's a high-risk area where there are extra permitting and building requirements for homeowners. In these floodplains, you also usually need flood insurance if you want a mortgage. Everett remembers before the flood wall went up, insurance cost her around $500 a year. $500 a year is a lot for those of us that don't make that much money. But now the city says she might want to get it again. That's because 14 years after the Crystal Brook flood wall was built, these properties in Las Simas are going back in the floodplain. Yeah, so it all ties back to the new rainfall data. Pam Kerfit is the engineer in charge of creek flooding for Austin's Watershed Protection Department. She says a new National Weather Service study called Atlas 14 added about a quarter century worth of rainfall data to local weather models. That showed heavier rains around Austin are more common than we thought, which means the Crystal Brook Wall, built to fight flooding, 
used rainfall assumptions that are now wrong. You know, the walls were designed for this you know, 100-year flood level. And what we know through Atlas 14 is, you know, based on the rainfall alone, that we are, you know, slightly more likely to have a rainfall event of that size that would cause that wall to overtop. It's not just in Las Cimas. In Dove Springs in southeast Austin, hundreds of homes near the $8 million Creek Bend flood wall are also back in the floodplain. This is a pretty dramatic change to the rainfall amount, probably one of the most dramatic that we've ever seen. The city's put up a website to show people what their new risk is. That map isn't final. It will be revised in two years. But Kerfit says if you're in a floodplain now, you should not assume that update will bring you any good news. I would encourage everybody to talk to their insurance agents and consider flood insurance. But back in the Las Cimas neighborhood, Noemi Everett says she probably won't. After all, the flood wall has been working since they put it up 14 years ago. If I was concerned about flooding here, I would definitely have it. But I'm not concerned at all about it. Well, experts say she should be. They say the flood wall has worked so far, but someday a storm will come that's strong enough to put water over the wall. And these new maps predict that storm may come sooner than we thought. I'm Mose Bouchelle for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. You're listening to the Texas Standard. We've heard stories about the decline of bees for over a decade now, and there seems to be no shortage of potential reasons for this. Habitat loss, climate change, and pesticide use all get named as culprits. And now you may be able to add glyphosate to that list. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in common herbicides like Roundup. Many landowners rely on it to fight weeds. But according to a new study, it may be harmful to bees. Eric De Silva Mata is one of the study's authors. He's a doctoral candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Texas at Austin. Eric, welcome to the Texas Standard. Uh, thanks, Laura. What exactly does glyphosate do to harm bees? Uh, basically, we saw this indirect effect of glyphosate on honeybees by affecting uh, their good microbial community. Okay, like the probiotics that people might be familiar with in their yogurt or something. Yeah. So their gut health is affected by this glyphosate. Yes, so yeah, and they are beneficial bacteria, mm-hmm. uh, which they rely on many things, uh, including food processing, regulation of host immune system, and defense against pathogens. So tell us about this experiment that you used to gather data about this. Okay, so we collected the hundreds of workers from the hives we keep here in the university, mm-hmm. and we brought the bees back to the lab. We marked them and exposed them to concentrations of glyphosate easily detected in the environment. And after this exposure, we returned them back to the hives and sample them after a few days to check how this microbial community uh, was affected by the exposure. And we actually saw that some bacteria species decrease in abundance, Mm -hmm. beneficial bacteria. And after that, we did some experiments to see uh, how these bees exposed to glyphosate would be compromised if they were exposed to a pathogen, commonly detected at low levels uh, in some bees in some hives. And we saw that bees previously exposed to glyphosate, they tend to get a disease more often than bees that were not exposed to the herbicide. 
I see. So it's not that the that the herbicide killed it, them immediately. It was no. just that they, their systems were compromised and they're more likely to get sick. So we had controls, and this is really important in this kind of experiments. And some of these controls, they were bees just exposed to glyphosate that we followed them after, mm-hmm. and they didn't die as much as the, the bees uh, that we fed the pathogen. Did you say that, that you put a mark on bees? Was that hard? How oh, do you do oh, okay. that? Okay, so uh, we marked them on, uh, with paint. So we just chill them so they uh, stop moving. And then we marked them with paint, like uh, that it's safer for them. So we could like track them later. Basically, this is the easiest way to find uh, bees in a hive. As I told you, we collected hundreds of bees. Uh, actually, it was like about 2,000 bees in each experiment, and we had to mark them all, but a hive can contain more than 8,000 bees. Oh, wow. So if you don't mark them, we will never be able to distinguish them, yeah. since they are very similar. They, are si- <laughs> they are, look like each other. It's the best way to find them, to keep tracking them, if you want to put them in the hive and find them. A lot of people listening to this may say, oh, I've got some Roundup in my garage. Um, do you see a way that this problem can be solved that accounts for both the health of the bees and for landowners who rely on chemicals like glyphosate? Yeah, it's a really hard question. So we need to do more experiments, especially under uh, in the field in, mm-hmm. under uh, natural conditions to see if we're going to see the same effects. Right now, we are just showing that this is possible to happen. Uh, the plants that are weeds for us, they are food for bees. Mm. So we need to find a way to but maybe use this herbicide without directly exposing the bees. Mm. But it's something that we need to study more and see what can be done. Eric De Silva Mata is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Texas at Austin. His recent study on the effect of glyphosate on bees can be found in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the thank Texas you. Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where Horn Frog faculty strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor of Education Michelle Baumel, whose I Engage Camp helps prepare middle schoolers to be engaged citizens. TCU, lead on. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. The American Civil Liberties Union of Texas has alerted 36 counties that they may be violating the Voting Rights Act. The ACLU says the counties appear to be failing to offer the same voting and election information in English and Spanish. Counties are required to provide materials in both languages when a significant number of voting age citizens are Spanish speakers. Matthew McCarthy is with the ACLU of Texas. He describes a few of the violations they found when reviewing the website sites of these counties. For example, in some instances, there was no information available in Spanish. And then there were also some counties that used Google Translate or other machine-based translation services. McCarthy says so far, one-third of the counties they contacted have responded positively to the letters and plan to update their websites. 
Cody Wilson made headlines across the country as the head of a company that distributes plans for 3D printed guns. Now, Wilson is out as leader of the design firm after he was arrested on charges of having sex with a minor. KUT's Delia Jones reports. Defense Distributed co-founder Cody Wilson resigned from the company on Friday evening. Wilson was arrested in Taiwan last week and returned to Texas. He's accused of paying a 16-year-old in Austin for sex. Paloma Heindorf has been named the firm's new director. She says Defense Distributed will continue selling blueprints for untraceable plastic guns despite the allegations surrounding Wilson. I think it's obvious to everyone here that he's been an incredibly powerful figurehead. But I think what's important to concentrate on here is that this is about an idea. Heindorf says the company has received about 3,000 orders for blueprints and has shipped about 1,500 so far. While the company won an initial legal fight to allow distribution of the plans, the company continues to battle appeals to that decision. Delia Jones, KU news. Employees at a 911 dispatch center about 50 miles north of Amarillo have a new co-worker and he goes by the name of Sergeant Squelch. Squelch is an adorable three-month-old puppy that City of Borger employees adopted from a local animal shelter. Nicole Riggle is an associate municipal court judge for Borger and first spotted Squelch on Facebook. Riggle says a couple of weeks ago she asked a shelter employee to bring him by the city offices for a visit. We walked into the judge's office and, you know, I was just kidding whenever I first did look at dispatch his new mascot. And after a few minutes, he was like, you know, that's a really great idea. He's so laid back. And I think it would actually be great if the city manager approves. The city manager not only approved, but gave Squelch his name. He's now the newest member of the Borger Regional Communications Center team, where he'll help with stress management and public outreach. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on what approved forms of photo ID they can bring to the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. Dallas schools consistently have higher rates of asthma in students. In Dallas ISD, some 9.5% of students have asthma. That's compared to an average of 8.3% nationwide. But this isn't just a health issue. It's also taking a toll on education. Respiratory issues are a leading cause of absenteeism among students in Dallas. But now, scientists are launching a study to try to reduce the impact of asthma among school-aged children in the region. Breathe Easy Dallas will take a look at DISD to determine which students are most effective and how to help them. Joining me now is Kathy Jack. She is Dallas Conservation Associate for the Nature Conservancy, who is leading the project along with the city of Dallas. Kathy, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Do we know what contributes to such high rates of asthma in the Dallas region? So what we do know here in Dallas is we've had a persistent problem with poor air quality and pediatric asthma for many years. In fact, our region has never met federal regulations for ozone. And we have sufficient evidence that links ozone and other pollutants like particulate matter with childhood asthma and asthma at large. We also have sufficient evidence that traffic-related air pollution is associated with the onset of childhood asthma. So in North Texas, we have traffic emissions are a leading cause of pediatric asthma. What's missing for us here is really specific localized data Hmm. that connects the air quality uh, on a local level with daily exacerbations of asthma uh, among school children. And we're really, we have an opportunity to measure at the school locations um, 
the impact of interventions. There are there's very scarce literature existing right now that actually measures the impact in terms of air quality and asthma among the student population. So this is a very exciting opportunity we have to gather real um, measured data. Well, and this, and this local data is especially interesting because already we know that it seems to disproportionately be affecting uh, schools in, in low-income areas. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So at a national level, we have the Center for Disease Control has released several studies that find that in the United States, black children are twice as likely as white children to have asthma. And most importantly, it's with greater severity. Mm -hmm. So experiencing higher than average rates of hospitalization, emergency room visits and deaths from asthma. We also know from our practitioners here in Dallas that are operating in the schools that kids in our lower income uh, families and neighborhoods will miss school for longer periods of time with more severe impacts for their education and health outcomes. So we've been working with the district to look at as a part of our study, refining which schools are we going to implement our study at. And as a part of that, we've um, received numbers on the number of students at all district schools that have been identified by their parents or through treatment plans on file as having asthma. And we've mapped out geographically where the highest uh, rates of asthma are. And like you had said, more than 50% of our uh, schools have percentage of asthmatic students that are higher than the national average. But what stands out is that the range is from 2.1% up to 28.8%. So when we classify the severity, you know, we're looking at anywhere within that range. And we have several of our schools where we have asthma rates higher than 12%. That's, That's quite high. And the most serious rates of asthma, we have a category where uh, students, more than 17% of the student population is diagnosed with asthma. Of, of the 18 out of 228 DISD schools where we have that severe of asthma rates, greater than 17%, 16 of those 18 schools are below Interstate 30. Mm-hmm. That's a sharp north-south divide. And if you were to look at the associated poverty rates, um, these are really high poverty schools. So we know this is an issue of equity. So part of what you're doing is is looking for interventions that could actually actually help. What sorts of interventions are, are you considering? So it's really important for us that we get some applied science on this topic. And we practical assumptions um, have guided health-based interventions at the schools. The North Central Texas Council of Governments has been funded to look at anti-idling measures at the schools. If you can reduce the number of buses and number of parent cars that are idling at drop-off and pick-up, can that improve the air quality and reduce asthma exacerbations? We also, as our organization, Um, the Nature Conservancy, along with our local partner, the Texas Trees Foundation, have been particularly interested in the science behind trees and the role that trees can play in reducing particulate matter and other uh, air quality emission sources and improving the outcomes. So we know, practically speaking, that these interventions should make a difference, but there really is not sufficient science to show by how much. Um, And that's the goal of this project, is really to track the direct impact of these different interventions and to be able to understand the factors that are um, connected to their success. Kathy Jack is Dallas Conservation Associate for the Nature Conservancy. Kathy, thank you again. Thank you so much. 
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology with a reminder that September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Screening can lead to early detection. Men age 50 and older are advised to discuss screening with their physicians. More at TexasOncology.com. Did you ever sit straight up in bed with something circling around your head and you swat at it as it whizzes by and it's just one pesky little fly? You shake your head and twitch your nose and settle down to sweet repose. And when you're just about to doze, fly trouble. My name is Wizzy Brown and I'm with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service and I work with insects. So, honey. Honey has been around and been used for thousands of years. They used it to make mead. Egyptians used to make it while they would eat it. They would also use it to preserve stuff because it's very good as a preservative. But essentially what happens is you have different types of worker bees. And the forager bees are the ones that are going to go out and collect nectar. And they pass this off. The, the nectar that they have collected and stored in a part of the stomach that is called the crop. They bring that back to the hive and they pass it off to the processor bee. So essentially they will regurgitate the nectar directly into the processor bee's mouth, which is kind of gross if you think about it. Um, kind of like mama birds and baby birds. But then that processor bee will then carry the nectar into the hive itself and they will actually put it into the honeycomb cells and they they put it into the cells by regurgitating it. And while those processor bees are regurgitating it, because it takes several trips to fill up a actual honey cell in the hive, they are also regurgitating an enzyme that starts to break the nectar down. So nectar is essentially sucrose and water. So very similar to table sugar along with water. And the enzyme that they are also regurgitating into the cell helps to break that down into fructose, which is fruit sugar, and then glucose, which is blood sugar. So not only are they breaking it down with those enzymes, they also have to get a lot of the water out of it. You know, it starts to dry out naturally, but they also will have bees that will fan their wings over the hive to help dry out the honey. And so while it becomes such a good preservative is while there may be things in it, there's not enough water in the honey for it to grow. So that's why you can't give babies honey because there could be spores in there, but they can't grow in the honey itself because once the honey has reached that you know, perfect place, they will cap that cell with the wax that they secrete from their bodies. And it essentially will hold that in stasis until either it's removed by a beekeeper or the bees decide to use it as food but honey is an excellent preservative. It's, it's great and tea, it's great on toast. It's just, it's a fabulous thing. Um, it's one of my favorites. I'm Wizzy Brown for the Texas Standard. 
Wizzy Brown is a Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Program Specialist and our resident insect expert. You got something bugging you? You can let us know on social media or email Standard at KUT.org. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at TexasChildrens.org. Houston is the most ethnically and racially diverse large metro area in the country. But while Houstonians might see that reflected where they work or go to school, there's one prominent place in Houston where you won't see it. Houston Public Media's Allison Lee has the story. The Houston Symphony is warming up for rehearsal in Jones Hall. It's similar to a lot of other symphonies in terms of ethnic makeup. An industry-wide study says major U.S. orchestras have mostly white musicians. Asian and Pacific Islander musicians represented just over 9%. Hispanic musicians made up less than 3%. African American, less than 2 Flutist Judy Dines meets me off stage. She's the only African-American musician in the symphony. I actually get, I guess, recognized on the street because of it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it feels nice to expand people's minds to what they think that they can do. Dines says she grew up in D.C. performing with an all-black youth orchestra. So in my mind, it wasn't a strange thing to see. It's not something I thought, well, I can't do this. But mostly when I was, I guess when I was in college, you know, that, that was when it, everything sort of looked different. But I was in college at that point. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm here, so I can certainly do it. And she did. Dines joined the Houston Symphony in 1992, and she also performs across the country. But the journey for these coveted orchestra positions is not an easy one. Jesse Rosen, president and CEO of the League of American Orchestras, explains why. Well, you know, some of this just goes back to history of discrimination in the field, and we had two separate unions, one for blacks and one for whites, and that didn't change until 1964. And, you know, I think for many classical musicians, they simply never even considered a career in orchestras because they believed it wasn't possible because of bias. So you have kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Rosen says the path to holding a position in the orchestra isn't cheap. From the purchase of instruments, to music lessons, to an education, to the expenditures associated with auditioning, I mean, it is a big lift. Houston Symphony Executive Director and CEO John Mangum says the process has intrinsically worked against diversity in orchestras. And so, you know, that's the big challenge for the field is how do we remove those barriers so that the symphony orchestra can be more reflective of the community in which it exists. The latest available data for the Houston Symphony Orchestra show of 87 full-time orchestral musicians, there are about a dozen musicians of Asian descent, one African-American, and one Hispanic. Over the last decade, Mangum says the Houston Symphony has made several efforts to cultivate diversity, and this year it also took part in the National Alliance for Audition Support, which helps African-American and Latino musicians with audition skills and participation. But Mangum says a crucial factor is who's holding the baton. The people in the orchestra are one component of this, but it's also who we're putting in front of the orchestra. So we have to be very thoughtful about giving opportunities to particular soloists, to particular conductors, and what music is the orchestra choosing to perform. 
In 2014, the symphony hired a new music director, Colombian-born, Vienna-trained Andres Orozco Estrada. But change in orchestras is inherently slow, industry-wide. Again, here's flutist Judy Dines. In recent seasons, there was a guy that had been here 50 years, you know? The turnover is not quick. There's definitely a lot of really fantastic minority musicians out there. And so I think that the symphony will eventually get to the point where it does reflect society. Dine says it just might take a while. In Houston, I'm Allison Lee. Coming up on 49 minutes past the hour Texas Standard Time, and that means there's still more Texas Standard ahead. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. In our Spotlight on Health project, Texas Standard has highlighted the challenges of accessing health care in rural parts of the state. Rural hospitals have closed across Texas, and small towns don't always have the specialists people need. Today, a compounding problem. A new study finds rural Texans are more likely to not have health insurance than their urban counterparts. The Rural Health Policy Project report was done by researchers from Georgetown and the University of North Carolina and examined the difference in rural-urban uninsured rates in both states that expanded Medicare under the Affordable Care Act and those that didn't. To help us navigate the study and understand its actual impacts, we turn to Patrick Brzezett. He's the Texas State Director for the Children's Defense Fund, a nonprofit advocacy group focused on kids. Patrick, thanks so much for your time. Happy to be with you this morning. So the study found 36% of low-income adults in rural areas of Texas didn't have health insurance. That was compared to 29% in metro areas. What sticks out to you about that? Yes. So having looked at these insurance issues for quite a while, it really jumped out at me that we had as much as 36% in rural areas that were uninsured. We've known for a long time that Texas you know, continues to rank last in the country have the most uninsured uh, people, uh, but to see the disparity between, you know, our, kind of our average number, which is terrible, at 17-something percent, and these rural areas really shows we've got a separate problem to address. What does it mean that people in rural areas are, are less likely to have health insurance? Well, I think there's a few factors that come into play. One is that um, you have probably lower-wage jobs, you know, you don't, maybe not have the, where that do not provide insurance as part of the workplace. You know, if you don't have that, then you've got to figure out a way to, to identify and try and get some affordable coverage. Texas has almost a million people who fit in what we call the coverage gap. So they um, they earn too much to make to get Medicaid and too little to get any subsidies in the marketplace. And so they're really stuck. And I think you're seeing more of that kind of a profile of a family in these rural communities. This study focused on adults, but your work is primarily with kids. How are kids affected by this? Sure, the research is really clear about this, that when you can get an entire family insured, 
Um, the utilization of preventive care goes up. Um, the health status of the entire family improves. Obviously, there's an economic benefit so that you're not having uh, a health emergency for the adult that suddenly hits the family budget mm. uh, in a way that doesn't, um, you know, they're not ready for. So there's multiple reasons that um, the best, you know, the best thing we can do is try and make sure that all of these working families have access to coverage, not just the kids, which is wonderful, uh, but the benefits expand when you can get everybody covered. We've talked on this program before about lack of access to health care providers in rural areas. How does lack of insurance compound that problem? So you have, particularly in rural areas and in rural hospitals, it's expensive to keep those programs going. And you can imagine that if you have a higher percentage of people coming into your facility who have no insurance versus some other you know, urban area, um, then that really hits your bottom line. It's very hard to make the numbers work. And it's a, it's a major factor across the country uh, in seeing the closure of rural hospitals and, and specifically here in Texas where we've seen the um, highest number of closures in recent years. Um, another access issue we see is that um, you, for families who don't have insurance or who are struggling to try and find care, this is kind of a lack of general providers. You know, so we, I, one case I can tell you, we have outreach teams working in rural communities in, in East Texas and also in the Valley. And we had one child where we had successfully connected the family to the CHIP program. And so they had some coverage for their kid, but they needed a dermatology specialist that deals with pediatrics. And so they're in Tyler. So the closest specialist they could find uh, that would take the CHIP program was in Denton. Oh. So, I mean, that, you know, that kind of travel, and you can imagine uh, across the whole range of issues is a real challenge. Patrick Brissett is Texas State Director for the nonprofit advocacy group, the Children's Defense Fund. We've been talking about a new report showing higher rates of uninsured low-income adults in rural Texas. We'll get a link to that study up at TexasStandard.org. Patrick, thank you again. Thank you. And you're listening to The Texas Standard. It's that time of the show again. Wells Dunbar back in the studio, wrapping up the talk of Texas. What are folks talking about there on social media? Hi, Laura. Well, we're hearing from many people about the show's top story about the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm -hmm. Yes, and how Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has intervened in a case regarding a Texas school district and the punishment it handed down to one student who refused to stand and recite the pledge. It's uh, my understanding from what we talked about earlier, the AG saying he will now uh, challenge that, uh, I, I guess, the right of the student not to uh, stand for the pledge in court uh, and sort of taking this uh, case under his wing Mm -hmm. and uh, representing it in the interests of, uh, I guess, what his office believes in the interest of Texans. So lots of people talking about this and the sort of controversial and constitutional issues it it brings up. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, Ben Schrader says a pledge should be completely voluntary to render any meaning or sincerity to force people, children no less, to recite a mantra of loyalty, whether they are personally compelled to or not, dilutes any real weight the pledge has. It's just a bunch of words at mm. that point. And uh, Christopher uh, Machuca, he uh, brings up an interesting point. I've, I've heard from some other people in the newsroom, he remembers um, many of his uh, classmates who are Jehovah's Witnesses right. and, uh, doing the same in class, uh, not standing for the pledge. But So I guess the issue here is the 
the sort of, uh, I guess, the background here and whether or not uh, the parental permission was right. in play, right. uh, whether or not. Yeah. So so a, a lot of different yeah. issues at play here that yeah. people are commenting. Yeah, on. you're right. That parental permission part is mm-hmm. kind of the thing that's that's sort of the sticking point here. It's that, yeah. the, that the kid isn't able to make the decision without yeah. the parent uh, signing off on that. Definitely. So, uh, again, a story that's really captured people's imaginations. Blythe Johnson says it's so essential that we know our rights, especially in this day and age. No one should be forced to do or say anything against their will. That freedom is protected by the Constitution. Well, shifting gear, Laura, uh, shifting gears, Uh plural, more chaos erupting in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation fight. I don't know if you've had a chance to see this. I was just looking and I saw Kavanaugh name again. What's going on now? What is this? Well, a third allegation of assault and misconduct has been made against President Trump's Supreme Court nominee this a day before he and his first accuser testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the charges here, Laura, are incredibly serious. In what appears to be a sworn declaration, a woman named Julie Swetnick accuses Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge, who we've uh, heard about previously, of spiking punch at high school parties to incapacitate young women and participate in gang rapes. Oh, wow. Uh, like I said, uh, very serious allegations. The declaration also lists other allegations of a drunken Kavanaugh engaging in unwanted and aggressive behavior against women at these parties. Uh, now, uh, some important perspective here. The, de- uh, the Miss Swetnick's attorney, we should note, is Michael Avenetti. He's the attorney who represented Stormy Daniels in that whole uh, back and forth mm-hmm. between her and mm-hmm. President Trump. And he's also known to have his harbor his own ambitions, potentially uh, political ambitions going forward. So it, it, it's interesting. It's, it's important to note that. And he was the one for getting this out there. He tweeted out these uh, sworn documents uh, on Twitter just moments ago, uh, honestly. And interestingly enough, though, it, it, it begins with uh, Julia Swetnick's lists of her uh, uh, government clearances and stuff. So the implication being that if she's lying, she could lose all that, lose her livelihood and more. So stakes raised going into the confirmation hearings, it sounds like, uh, yet again, Laura. Yeah, new information, and we're watching it all on social media. Join us back here tomorrow. Tweet us anytime or find us on Facebook. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.